Welcome to our podcast, Neurology Morning Commute, Multiple Sclerosis and the S1P Receptor Upgrade. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb. In this episode, Dr. James Bowen and Dr. Jeannie Cote continue their discussion on the latest treatments for multiple sclerosis with a look at the newest S1P receptor modulators. What is their mechanism of action? Which patients would benefit from them and how are side effects and toxicities managed with these latest treatment options? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS8. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bowen is the medical director of the Multiple Sclerosis Center at Swedish Neuroscience Institute in Seattle. Dr. Cote is a neurologist at the Multiple Sclerosis Center at the Memorial Healthcare Institute for Neuroscience in Owasa, Michigan. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bowen will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast, The Neurology Morning Commute. Now, today's title is the Sphingosin 1 Phosphate Receptor Modulators Upgrade. I'm James Bowen, the Medical Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Center at Swedish Neuroscience Institute. I'm joined by Dr. Jeannie Cote, a neurologist at the Multiple Sclerosis Center at the Memorial Healthcare Institute for Neuroscience in Owasa, Michigan. Uh, Dr. Cote, welcome back, and thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. In our last podcast, we had a great discussion about the current therapy landscape for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. So now today we're going to take a specific look at sphingosin-1-phosphate or S1P receptor modulators. Uh, this all started with fingolimod, which was approved in 2010, and now we have three additional uh, second-generation members of this family. Saponamod was added in 2019, Ozanamod in 2020, and Panesamod in 2021. Uh, they're all approved for elapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. So uh, first, I would like to uh, discuss the mechanism of action for this. There, the sphingosin-1-phosphate receptors, there are five types of this receptor, uh, types one through five. And um, type 1 is of particular importance because it's found on lymphocytes and is uh, probably the most important uh, part of um, the mechanism of action. Uh, the type 5 receptor is found in brain uh, as well as some other tissues, and it um, is important in some uh, neurogenesis, oligodendrocyte survival, uh, neuronal activity, or proliferation. And then uh, type 3 receptor um, is heart is found especially on heart and vascular structures. Uh, type 2 and 4 uh, seem to be less important uh, for our purposes. Uh, fingolimod interacts with all of these types of receptors except not type 2. Uh, saponamod and ozanamod uh, interact with uh, the first and the fifth uh, type of receptor, and panesamod uh, is only the first uh, receptor type. When I think about the mechanism of action uh, for uh, this family of drugs, um, I like to divide the immune system 
in a way that's different than uh, most neurologists are thinking about. I think we're trained to think about CD4, CD8, largely because of AIDS. Uh, but uh, a better division of the uh, immune system is to think about naive cells, memory cells, and effector cells. Uh, these cells can be either CD4 or CD8. Uh, some of these cells have a different receptor called CCR7 on their surface, and that allows these cells to exit the uh, lymph vessels and get into the parenchyma of the lymph node. Uh, naive cells have this receptor and uh, they go to the lymph nodes where antigens are presented to the uh, naive cell. And if the antigen matches up to the receptor on that naive cell, uh, then it will activate that cell. Uh, lymphocytes spend about a week uh, in the lymph nodes trying to find their way out of the lymph node, and then they circulate for about 12 hours, and then they end up in another lymph node again. So not a very exciting existence, I think. If they come across a target and the target loosely or moderately binds to the uh, lymphocyte, then it will activate that lymphocyte. But if it binds tightly to the lymphocyte, it will kill it. And uh, it turns out that tight uh, binding is frequent with autoantigens. And this is one of the uh, main ways that your body eliminates autoimmune cells. If they're activated, they can become either a memory cell or an effector cell. Uh, effector cells go out and try to kill that target and memory cells remember. And if they see the target again, they'll reproduce and make uh, millions of copies of themselves to help try to attack that target. The um, effector cells uh, do not have CCR7. They do not end up in the lymph nodes and uh, they make up about 20% of the uh, lymphocytes in the blood. So having naive cells trapped in the lymph node will decrease your uh, absolute lymphocyte count by about 80%, but the 20% remaining is the 20% of effector cells that were always in the circulation. So it's an unusual thing where the mechanism of action dramatically decreases your lymphocyte count, but the degree of immune suppression does not predict uh, infectious complications. Um, with that as background, uh, Dr. Cote, maybe you could help review for us some of the pivotal trials that have been done on these medications. The, the first one that we'll discuss is saponamide. Uh, that one uh, was the first of the second generation S1Ps approved, so just sort of going in, in order of approval. So saponamide, um, its landmark trial was the EXPAND trial, and that was really looking at secondary progressive MS patients. And this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. What was really interesting and unique with EXPAND and saponamide is that it really went after an older, more disabled demographic of patients. So most of the trials are gonna be 18 to 55 and a level of disability, you know, zero to, to 5.5 on an EDSS scale. And EXPAND really went for a more mature population. So mature meaning having had MS longer and the upper age cutoff was older. So these patients were up to 65 in age the average age was 48, the average EDSS was 5.4, and the mean time since onset of disease was 17 years. So th this is a different population. 
Um, and what they showed as far as a primary endpoint, first thing they were looking at was time to three month confirmed disability progression. And that is a change in the EDSS value of a certain amount based on what your baseline EDSS was coming into the study. And what this showed was a reduced relative risk of confirmed disability progression at three months by about 21%. Um, and again, this was a placebo-controlled study. Um, now, this effect was uh, seen in the active secondary progressive MS patients and really not significant in non-active secondary progressive MS patients. Secondary endpoint um, with this was also looking at things like T2 lesion changes. Those were decreased as well as a decrease in the annualized relapse rate of about 55%. There were also um, kind of some exploratory and post hoc um, analysis um, endpoints. So things looking like brain, looking at brain volume and um, cognitive um, testing like SDMT. Um, but no major conclusions of statistical or clinical significance can be drawn from those endpoints. The major one, though, is really that, that uh, decrease in time to three-month confirmed disability progression. So with Ozanamod, we had clinical trials of Sunbeam, Radiance, and Daybreak, which was the open-labeled extension data. And this was enrolling patients 18 to 55 with relapsing MS and an EDSS or disability score ranging zero to five. And these were patients who had had some activity to get into this trial. So either a relapse or relapse and MRI enhancing lesion prior to randomization. And they were randomized to either Ozanamod or interferon beta 1A. The primary endpoint was looking at relapse rate over 24 months. And what this showed was that the annual relapse rate for Ozanamod, one milligram dose, was 0.17 relative to interferon, which was at 0.28. So um, approximately a 48% reduction in uh, relative reduction in annualized relapse rate at one year and 38% at two years. It also looked at some MRI metrics and showed that Ozanamod decreased the number of enhancing lesions more than interferon beta-1A. The relative reduction was about 63% and reduced new or enlarging T2 lesions, a relative reduction of about 48% relative to interferon 1A. It did not show statistically significant differences in three or six month disability progression. And then Daybreak was its open label extension at five years out. And this was really looking at um, sort of cognitive metrics. And so they were looking at SDMT or the symbol digit modalities test. And what they showed um, in general was that patients who had continued Ozanamod um, saw less declines or less sort of negative changes on the SDMT test. The other thing is it showed no new safety signals and an annualized relapse rate of 0.1. So no new surprises, which is always nice when newer medicines are coming to market. And then the last one was Ponesimod, and this is the optimum trial. And this was this one was different in that um, this one was now randomized um, to be compared to teraflunamide. 
So a lot of the trials will have been compared to interferon. And so this was using an oral comparator, which is just a, a little more contemporary. So again, looking at patients with relapse EMS 18 to 55, and again, with activity relapses on MRI or clinically leading up to enrollment. The primary endpoint on this was a 30% relative reduction in annualized relapse rate, and that impact was greater in a subgroup analysis in patients who were treatment naive with lower EDSS, so EDSS scores less than three. Secondary endpoints, it reduced risk of unique lesions by 56%. Um, it had a decrease in um, an MS fatigue score. That was one of the things that this um, sort of kept tracking in patients, which is a little unique. I've not really seen that in other trials. And then the time to confirm disability accumulation, again, for this was not significant. And that's an excellent review. And um, you know, I think uh, all of these results really show that these drugs are highly effective, uh, this family of drugs. So. Uh, Maybe we should talk a little bit about what type of patients we would consider are the best for this. And uh, I would throw out that uh, obviously uh, people that prefer oral medication, uh, this is a good option for. Um, uh, those that prefer one pill a day rather than two pills a day uh, or that do not want IV treatments, uh, often because of the travel involved. Um, uh, people that uh, you want a highly effective drug for, and then people that have other gastrointestinal issues that might be a problem with some of the other oral medications. And are there uh, other factors, Dr. Cote, that you uh, use as well? I think if you consider that these are performing better in patients on interferon or teraflunamide. I think patients who are breaking through those, you know, this, this has good data to show that this could be a very good choice for them as well. Right, yeah, good uh, escalation treatment for uh, treatment failures. Mm -hmm. And then how do, you, um, how do you pick which of these S1P modulators to use? So I do have to say, these are sort of like types of apples to me. You have Granny Smith's and Honeycrisp's, and there is so much that is similar to them. Um, you know, in general, part of it is which one can I get? Um, but I think part of it too is there are some differences. So in terms of um, pre-testing, there are some differences with pre-testing requirements, with washouts. So perhaps related around, um, you know, attempting conception, one that washes out faster for a patient planning conception, that might be something that motivates which one I choose. If I'm looking at an older patient with active disease, then a trial that enrolled patients up to 65 that you know, my patient may may be a better fit for you know saponamod in that context. But in general, I, I think it's also okay to have one that's your go-to if you don't use all of these a lot, and that just be the the one that you use. To be honest, yeah, I think we have a similar uh, approach here, and uh, in particular, uh, as you said, the one that you can get is the best one because uh, insurance often dictates uh, which one is their favorite based on uh, price negotiations. I might uh, move on to side effects uh, now and how to manage some of these side effects. And uh, one of them is the uh, first dose monitoring. So uh, bradycardia uh, is uh, 
is an issue with the first dose uh, of the drug for a few hours, and then subsequent doses have minimal changes in pulse rate. But uh, because of that, fingolimod requires a um, six-hour first-dose monitoring. But uh, all of these uh, newer medications uh, avoid having to do a first-dose monitoring uh, partly because they do not interact with the type 3 receptor that has prominent cardiac um, features, uh, but also they all taper upwards on the dose, and that uh, is very important. So um, that's how I monitor the, the bradycardia, and um, there are some circumstances that you need to do the monitoring anyway. These are primarily people with conduction abnormalities, uh, cardiac abnormalities, or people that are on drugs that you can't temporarily take them off of uh, that would prolong the QT interval. One other issue is restarting. So the patient didn't get their drug shipment, they stopped it and they've been off for a month. Uh, uh, what do you have to do to restart? And um, for fingolimod, you have to do a whole first dose observation again with the saponamide, if they miss four days, then you get to repeat the first dose. But uh, with um, ozanamide and uh, panesamide, you just restart it. You don't have to do the first dose observation unless they have cardiac issues. Uh, another issue is, is eye uh, complications. And um, occasionally with these drugs, you get macular edema, which is swelling of the macula and the retina. And um, uh, because of that, um, you would get uh, an OCT prior to starting uh, most of these medications. Uh, with uh, fingolimod, you would get that baseline, but then you would repeat it in every patient three to four months. But the other newer members of this family, you do not need to repeat the OCT. You would just uh, get that testing if the patient had symptoms or you would monitor them more closely if they had uveitis or diabetes, which puts you at higher risk of uh, this complication. Uh, liver function tests uh, with fingolimod, they um, uh, recommend periodically checking that. They, they don't, the FDA does not say what the timing on the period is, but uh, period, periodically you would recheck that, and you keep doing it until two months after the last dose. But uh, the other three, you get liver function test monitoring only if they get symptoms of liver problems. They get jaundice or you know, start having prolonged fatigue or something that you would suspect uh, liver problems. Uh, a few other ones, blood pressure monitoring. Um, uh, that's generally done when they come to see you in clinic. Um, the um, average is about three millimeters systolic and two millimeters diastolic uh, increase. So I, on the uh, blood pressure, I, I tend to spend way more time um, talking primary care doctors down that it's not really my drug that's have this, cause this person to have lifelong hypertension <laughs> and that uh, the drug itself has actually rather modest changes in blood pressure. Uh, lymphopenia is a question that we get asked so often that we wrote a script in our electronic medical record to respond to this, but um, you get, as I alluded to earlier, extreme levels of lymphopenia. Uh, it could be 150 or anyway, quite low. Uh, and it does not 
indicate that the patient is at any higher risk of infection. So that the FDA actually does not recommend testing for any of these drugs. In particular, CD4 and CD8 testing is worthless. Uh, so uh, we generally don't recommend uh, looking. But uh, yeah, every once in a while, people will get a blood test and they have a low... Uh, a low lymphocyte count, and our response in general has been to just say that's proof that the patient is taking their drug and just carry on. Two last things uh, for me, uh, PML, uh, there are um, uh, cases of PML uh, with these. It's hard to get a good rate on it, but it's maybe one in 8,000 patients or something to that degree. Um, there is no testing that tells you who is at risk so uh, with this drug. So the um, anti-JC virus um, uh, index is not helpful in this setting. So really the uh, what you have to do is be aware that PML can occur. And if people have slowly worsening neurologic problems over a few weeks or a couple of months, uh, that should be your clue to get an MRI to see if it's PML. And then the final thing I would mention is rebound. There are some cases that if you abruptly stop this drug, uh, they can have rebound. It tends to be about three months to six months after stopping. Uh, we don't know a rate. It's so rare that we really can't calculate a rate, but uh, you should be aware of that. And in my view, the best way to prevent that is if you're stopping this drug and switching to something else, then you should get them onto the next drug before you hit the three-month window. I don't know, Dr. Cote, if you have any additional comments on these or you know, just that I I, I tell patients, you know, it, we can always stop or make a change, but you have to include me in that conversation when it's these types of drugs, so that we really can get in front of you know any risk of rebound. But I think, you know, fingolimod was sort of clunky to use. These, these second-generation, more refined S1Ps really have taken out a lot of the headache with, with having much less cardiac uh, complication. And so they really have become much easier to use. And then uh, do you not track the lymphocytes or you do track them? Um, I check them, but I don't know why I check them because I don't <laughs> do anything with them other yeah. than verify patients are taking their medicines. <laughs> So yeah, it sounds like uh, those of us who use the drug, like the two of us that use it a lot, uh, we, we do not get upset by low lymphocyte value. No, no. If anything, it's reassuring that they're taking their medicine. Good. Well, that wraps up today's podcast. Uh, we emphasize the newer sphingosin-1-phosphate modulator therapies today, uh, including their mechanism of action, the research studies on their efficacy, uh, which patients might be considered for this, and then how to manage the side effects. I hope that you found this useful. Uh, thanks for listening, and Dr. Cote, thanks for joining me on this discussion, and I hope our audience will join us on future podcasts. Thanks. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS8. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services. Thank you for joining us today.